Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to Matthew 26 to get us started. Hopefully you picked up a handout on your way in, and you'll notice that we're talking about the second of the two sacraments, the Lord's Supper, today. So let's read the Lord's Supper instituted in Matthew 26 at verse 26. So here's how that goes. This is the word of the Lord. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then we could turn to Mark 14, where we read of the institution of the Lord's table there. Mark 14 puts it this way at verse 22. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, take it, this is my body. And when he, had given a cu- when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And then we could go to Luke chapter 22 at verse 17. And we read this, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And then, of course, the section that we read uh, typically before the Lord's table is 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 at verse 23, where the Apostle Paul is recounting the words of institution. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So those are our four institutions that we see, the four commands received from the Lord to celebrate the Lord's table, and we're going to unpack that a little bit. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll dive into this. Father, thank you for your Lord's Day. Thank you that we can set our minds on things above, and we can take them off the things of the earth. 
We do pray that we would honor your Sabbath day and keep it holy, and that we would uh, cease from our own pleasures and uh, think upon you and your glory. Father, thank you for the Lord's table. Thank you for this fellowship meal that you've given to uh, your elect, to your church. Lord, we pray as we talk about it that you would give us understanding. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So let's read the first section. Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood, called the Lord's Supper, to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death. The sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. So a number, I mean, that's a thesis statement there. That's, this is, uh, gives us certain information about the Lord's Supper, what it is, um, how it came into being, and what it means, what it does, okay? So the first thing is, is that Jesus instituted this sacrament. Now, we already talked about that two chapters ago when we talked about the sacraments in general. There has to be a command from the Lord for it to be a sacrament. There has to be a command from Jesus himself. And clearly, in those four passages that I just read you, there were commands by Jesus to take and eat and to do this in remembrance of him. And so, the Lord Jesus instituted these things. He did so on the night wherein he was betrayed. That very night very night before he died, the next morning, right? So within hours of his death, he instituted this table for our spiritual good. And it is to be observed in his church, which they will elaborate on later what that means, that the sacraments are to be observed in the church. How long? Till the end of the world. The Lord's table will continue and baptism will continue until the end of the world. Through all ages. And then, um, then there will be no more need to baptize. There will be no more need for the sacraments. Faith will be sight when we're living in the kingdom of God eternally. And so there, the sacraments will... Um, will have lost their purpose and, uh, and will be um, feasting at the marriage supper of the Lamb at that point, right? Face to face with our Lord. And so, why was it instituted? Why is it to be observed unto the end of the world in His church? It's, uh, it gives us a number of reasons here, right? And, you know, as we study this document, you, you learn to... You learn their language, right? They're really long sentences, but they, they're, they make sense, right? They, there's a good pattern. And so look for semicolons in sentences. And semicolons will tell you that they're listing something, okay? 
And so, here's why our Savior instituted the Lord's Supper. And the first thing is to remember his sacrificial death. That's the first thing. Do this in remembrance of me. Right? We are to be remembering Christ's death on our behalf. That, I would say, is the primary purpose of this meal. Remembering the cross. Remembering the death of Christ. Remembering his atonement. Remembering the propitiation that he took upon himself. Remembering that sacrificial love that he demonstrated there. Um, That atoning, effectual love of Jesus Christ upon the cross. So we remember that. We come to this meal and our minds should be thinking about the cross. We should be thinking about his death. Yeah, Bob. Yeah. Yeah, propitiation means to to um, absorb the wrath of God. It means it means that Jesus took upon himself the wrath that was due to us upon himself. So God God made him the curse. He became sin, and so so rightfully um, uh, God's God was propitiated by his sacrifice, right? There was, a, there was peace made by his outpouring of wrath upon Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe. I mean, I'd have to think about it, but um, it seems to be slightly set apart from propitiation in my mind, but I'd have to think about it. So, that's the first thing, the remembrance, to remember. So, on the first Sunday of November, when Lord willing, we come to the Lord's table, one of the ways that you prepare is by thinking about the cross and what Christ did on your behalf what Christ did out of love for you that you could never do yourself, right? Uh, Atoning for sins, bearing the wrath of God, making peace between God and man as a mediator. And then secondly, the sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in all and to all duties which they owe unto him. Okay, so that's the second thing, the sealing. And whenever you read the word seal in the, um, in the Westminster Confession, uh, as, far as, as far as I can tell, you, you need to think of authenticating, the authentication of, right? This authenticates all the benefits thereof unto true believers. So, Are you saved by coming to the Lord's table? You remember Christ's sacrifice. How are you saved? You're saved by Christ's sacrifice. Okay, that's the reality. And the the sacraments point toward the reality as signs and seals. Remember we talked about that two weeks ago. Signs and seals. Signs point toward the reality, but they aren't the real thing itself. And then seals authenticate that thing. And so, 
when you come to the Lord's table and you partake of the body and blood of the Lord spiritually, you are you receive the benefit of, of authentication of all those things that God has done for you spiritually. Um, you know, what does that feel like? I don't know. You know, it's, it's different at different times. What is it? But, but we, should, we should find assurance in the table because what's being authenticated is you're justified. You, you'll be glorified. You'll be sanctified, right? You've been atoned for. Your sins have been removed from you. Christ became the curse. All those things are authenticated in this meal. And you should have a sense of that when you come to the table. And, uh, and what a glorious thing that, that there would be that spiritual nourishment and growth in him that is found by coming to this fellowship meal. And then f- further, they say, it, um, it authenticates or it points toward your further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him. In other words, as you come to the table, you partake of his body and blood, you think about, wow, this sacrifice. What glory. I want to glorify him now. What can I do? What can I do to thank him for this glorious benefit he's given to me that I couldn't, I couldn't have earned in a, in a million ages? And so, so as we come to the table, as we contemplate the cross, then we come away from it and we're like, okay, now how can I live for this glorious Savior? How can I glorify him? What can I do? What service do I need to give myself to? What, what duties does he require of me that will now be my pleasure because he's given me so much? Um, the pearl of great price that inspires us to then go and speak his name to others. And then uh, the last section, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. Um, a bond and pledge. So a bond brings two things into one, and a pledge is like a promise, right, to one another. So this bond, the Lord's table not only reminds us of our union with Christ, it reminds us with, of our union with one another as we are united in Christ. The body of Christ, united together, right? The, the many in one body, the many and the one, the one and the many. And so the Lord's table, when you come to it, you should be thinking about the fact that, wow, all of us here, as far as I can discern, right, are united to Christ and because of that, united to one another as we eat the body and drink the blood of Christ spiritually. What a, what a wonderful thing. This is, a, this is why... Um, and you just think of the eternity of God and being, being united with Christ and His, His eternal being. And, and that's why uh, those who understand baptism and the church and the community of faith and the household of God really see it as stronger than the bonds of blood relationships. Right? Right? 
stronger than the bond that you have with aunts and uncles and parents and brothers and sisters. Hopefully, they're united to you in Christ also, which is, which is glorious, but all of us have experience of the awkwardness of holding our faith in the midst of a family that doesn't share that faith, and they just seem like absolute strangers, right? Like they can't understand the first thing about you. And it's just awkward, right? Because it's family. You're supposed to be like tight and everything. But those bonds just aren't as intense as these bonds that were, were lined out before the worlds existed. Those are the, the real bonds. Those are the real ties. And so for those of you who had horrible fathers... You have a heavenly Father who's loved you before the ages, right? Those of you who had a, a, an abusive mother, well, those bonds are light, and your bonds to the Lord Jesus Christ are much stronger and predate all of those bonds, okay? Not that we aren't called to honor and love our parents, that's, that's a command of God, but thinking in this sense of, where are our strongest ties? It is with the Lord Jesus Christ and those things that are, are eternal. And that is wonderful. Those who don't know Jesus Christ have a tie as well. They'll be bound to the devil and his condemned angels. Right? But God's people will be bound to Christ eternally and have been known by him and predestined by him before the foundations of the world. That, that should, should make you happy. No? More donuts? Do we need to bring the donuts in and pass them about? <laughs> Any questions about the first section? That's a, we we got to move on to get through the rest, but that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, this is it for you. Two questions apiece. Sure. Yeah, I, and that leads me to, you know, the, the way that the elements are distributed around the church some, somewhat dictates how we celebrate it. And we pass the plates, and it's a very individualistic experience. I would at some point um, urge the elders to change that and that we would process forward and receive it together because there's a more whole body sense of this 
And I think that's very helpful. It's the way they did it in Geneva. It's the way the early um, reformers uh, did it. So you would have two, two elders on each side, and um, they would have the bread and the wine. And as you took the bread, they would say the body of Christ. And as you took the wine, they would say the blood of Christ you know, shed for you. And then you would take it and go back and sit and partake of that. And I just think seeing all of the body come forward to receive Christ is helpful. And, it, I mean, it's, it's one of my goals to, um, to t- change that process that we have. Or do it both ways. I mean, there's no reason why we have to stick with one process just so that it's decent and in order. Right? All right, so anyway, thank you. Um, Second section, in this sacrament, Christ is not offered up to his Father, which means he is not re-sacrificed in this meal. Um, Again, this is going to be a contrast to the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's table. And of course, the questions that always come up when it comes to sacraments is how is grace conferred in the sacraments? What, you know, what does it do and how does it function? How does, um, how is grace conferred? And then the other question when it comes to the Lord's table is how is Christ present there? You know, and these were the, th- these two questions were the main questions beyond the authority of Scripture that the, the early reformers really uh, did debated about, and the Lutherans and the Reformed and the Zwinglians kind of didn't get on the same page, okay? Um, for whatever reason, they, they resisted Calvin's um, proper view. I don't know, but so, um, but notice that Christ is not sacrificed here. When you go to a Roman Catholic Mass, they are recommitting a sacrifice of Christ. And so when the the priest consecrates the host, at that moment, they say that that bread transubstantiates into the physical body of Christ, at which it is then elevated and worshipped, because it's Christ. They elevate the host, right? And um, in the medieval period, the people in the pews observed all of this behind a screen. It was all hidden off from them, right? And there were these little, little holes you could look through to see this mystery. It was all hidden, and the priest would partake, and the people might get the bread, but never the wine. Because they had a doctrine that if you take one element, you've taken all of Christ. Right? You don't need to take both, even though Christ commanded both, right? and even though they are separately to be celebrated. Right? And so, um, uh, so, so there's a lot going on there, but, but the, the Roman Catholic Mass is a sacrificial meal. We don't do that. Why don't we do that? Because the book of Hebrews makes it abundantly clear that there is one sacrifice that ended all sacrifices, right? We could go to three or four passages that make that explicit. You don't re-sacrifice Christ. He did it once. Once is enough. And that was the end of all necessity of any sacrificing. Now, we simply remember that one sacrifice. Okay? We look to it. 
in this meal. It's not a sacrificing of Christ. Okay, so in the sacrament, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sins of the quick or dead. The quick means the living. But only a commemoration of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all. And a spiritual oblation. What does oblation mean? It's an offering, right? A spiritual offering of all possible praise unto God for the same, so that the popish sacrifice of the mass, as they call it, notice they put that in parentheses, as they call it, um, is most abominably injurious to Christ's one only sacrifice the alone propitiation for all the sins of his elect. The sacrifice of the Mass was beyond, maybe just beyond papal authority and scripture authority. The sacrifice of the Mass took all the heat of the Reformers. They abominated the Mass. They absolutely abominated the Mass. If you want to hear hot words... Go read Calvin, go read Beza, go read Bucer, go read Luther on the Mass, okay? Luther will be the lightest of those men because Luther retained the Mass for a long time, right? The German Mass. And then it reformed more and more. But Calvin, Calvin is scandalized by the Mass. In a long letter he wrote to somebody Somebody sent him a letter and said, look, I, I hold to the Reformed faith. Can I attend Mass just to be a good neighbor? And Calvin is like, no, for 14 pages. <laughs> no, you may, n what, what are you going to stand by as everybody's, as, as everybody's worshiping idols and just act like you're just there to, you know? I mean, no, you'll be participating in, in worshiping idols. And so he, they just go intense on this. But think of the difference here. Think of the Baltimore Catechism, which is the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, says the Mass is the same sacrifice as the sacrifice of the cross. Because in it, the Mass, in the Mass, because in the Mass, the victim is the same, and the principal priest is the same, Jesus Christ. The victim is the same, right? That's, that's that transubstantiation. That's Christ being broken again and his blood being shed again, right? And so they, they see no difference between the cross and the mass. And we're like, no, no, no. Read the book of Hebrews, please. Read scripture. Read Jesus saying, in, do this in remembrance of me, right? Remembering my death. Okay, so um, a lot more I could say about that, but I'm going to leave it at that. Oh, one other thing, one other thing. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that Christ dies for sinners. Dies for sinners. Not died for sinners. They teach that Christ dies 
He dies again and again and again and again and again for sinners. Not that he died for sinners once for all, as Scripture states, right? And so keep that in mind. That's a simple paradigm for you to remember what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, that Christ dies for sinners. And, and that's why they say it's abominably injurious to Christ's one and only sacrifice. It injures what Christ has actually done by performing it again and again and again. And what does the book of Hebrews says? It says, well, it doesn't have to be performed again and again and again like the Old Testament sacrifices that weren't completely efficacious. This one is, so there's no need to do it again and again and again and again. I mean... Seems, seems so clear. All right. So what are ministers to do when it comes to the table? We don't perform a consecration where the bl- blood and body transubstantiate. And remember, there's, they don't... Uh, I'm going off script here. Um, we'll never get through all this. Um, just going off the top of my head. When in transubstantiation... They say that Christ's body is physically present and Christ's blood, his blood is physically present, right? So he's physically present. But the bread and the wine still look like bread and wine, okay? And so there's, there's a philosophical concept going on here between accidents and, and, and something else. And so, but they s- still say it appears to be bread and wine. And... And we say, no, nah, it's bread and wine. This is bread and wine. It's exactly what Jesus fed to his apostles on that night in which he was betrayed. He gave them bread. He gave them wine. He did not, he did not open a vein and put his blood into a cup. He gave them wine. And that was a sign and seal of his blood. Okay? And the bread. Likewise, he wasn't cutting off chunks of his flesh. He gave them actual bread, probably unleavened, because it was the Passover. Likely. I mean, it was unleavened, (laughs) right? But it doesn't matter whether we use unleavened bread or not. Uh, Anyway, Um, but just think about that, okay? Now, section three, the Lord Jesus hath in this ordinance appointed his ministers to declare his word of institution to the people, to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine, and thereby to set them apart for a common to and holy use, and to take and break the bread, to take the cup, and they communicating also themselves to give both to the communicants, but to none who are not then present in the congregation. All right, so here's what the ministers are supposed to do. You're not re-sacrificing, you're not saying in consecration and doing the transubstantiation and bells and smoke and whistles and all these things that go along with it and the elevation of the host. Here's what you get to do. It's pretty simple. Read the words of institution, pray, right? Bless the elements of bread and wine through that prayer. And, and in that, you're setting apart these ordinary elements for a holy use. And then to take the bread and the cup and give it to those who are there to commune. And that's it. I would say built into the words of institution are 
the, the second part of 1 Corinthians 11 where there are warnings given, right? There's a fencing of the table that takes place as part of that institution. So you, that's it. Read the institution, warn people that they shouldn't come if they don't have faith, pray, send it out, eat. That's it. Not this crazy 45-step thing of the Mass. That's to be observed, but not partaken of. All right, and then notice that last phrase, but to none who are not then present in the congregation. It is for the gathered body of Christ. We don't practice private communion, right? We practice the sacraments in the gathered body of Christ. Now, that's an interesting statement given... um, COVID and live streaming. You've probably heard of churches that, that encouraged members at home to get bread and grape juice or wine and, and partake of the Lord's table at home. Led from afar. No, not going to do that, right? It is, in the, it is in the presence of God's people. What about people who are shut-ins? Well, we'll take the church to them and then we'll celebrate there. But there'll be the preaching of the word, there'll be some singing, there'll be some prayers. You go through a small service with somebody who's shut in and can't make it to the church. We did that with Mary Wolf a couple months ago, right? We had a service at her house and we went through all, we had the church gathered there. And so that was not a private celebration, that was a very public celebration and the church was there. All right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, it's a private form. It's like publicly private, you know, but um, yeah, I would not do that just because it makes, the sacraments are for the church and it's improper to single people out for the Lord's, especially at the Lord's table when it's all about being united in Christ and what it means and what we've already talked about. So I would say that's sort of a form of private communion. Communion drive throughs yeah, that's, that's cool. <laughs> that's fine. Oh, I'm sure Americans have thought of every way to pervert what's holy. What's that? Well, good. We'll stick it to the Ukrainians. That makes me feel a little better. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. It's like being back in the Reformation times. Did you have a question? Yes. Yes. um, But... Generally, you can the the pastor can take the it's the it's the one sort of visual symbol that's allowed is the breaking of the bread and so taking a piece and breaking it. But I'm very careful not to elevate the host because it's forbidden later in the Westminster Confession. I don't hold up the cup when I say the cup of the Lord. I don't pick up one of those things and hold it up. I, that's intentional, and I don't break the bread and hold up the bread. Again, it's intentional to avoid 
any adoration of the elements or any misunderstanding that it's something that is to be worshipped or it's something that it isn't. Yeah. Again, it's... That's the that's the American way, right? Just to, to diffuse leadership out and allow anybody to do anything. You know, it's the radical egalitarianism of our age. And so the the confession is quite clear that the sacraments are to be um, officiated by ministers, those who have been ordained, ministers of the word. And so um, somebody who's not, you know, Somebody who's not ordained should not be handling this because there is built-in pastoral care that they are not prepared to handle, right? The fencing of the table and warning people, look, if, if you can't come to this table, you're going to be eating and reaping God's judgment upon yourself. Well, we know if we've booted somebody from the table, right? Or we know somebody who has just confessed sins to us and they probably shouldn't come to the table, or we know who's resisting membership because they don't want to be disciplined. So we know all these things, and we don't want to harm, we don't want to invite people to harm in this meal. We want them to know the blessing of this meal, which, which comes with self-examination. And um, so, yeah, I would, uh, I mean, the Presbyterian Church has always said it's, officiating at these things and celebrating them are to be led by ordained ministers of the word and in the in the body of Christ gathered. Where were we? Four? And we have like seven minutes. Private masses or receiving the sacrament by a priest or any other alone, as likewise the denial of the cup to the people, worshiping the elements, the lifting them up or carrying them about for adoration and the reserving them for any pretended religious use are all contrary to the nature of the sacrament and to the institution of Christ. Um, those are all things that the Roman Catholic Church was guilty of, is guilty of. Five, the outward elements in the sacrament duly set apart to the uses ordained by Christ have such relation to him crucified as that truly, yet sacramentally only, they are sometimes called by the name of the things they represent, to wit, the body and blood of Christ, albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. So no transubstantiation. And I talked about that two weeks ago when we talked about the sacraments in general, so I'm going to blow by that again, that sacramental union between these things where we can talk about the bread and be talking about Christ but it's a sacramental union, it's not a physical transformation. Six, the, that doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, by consecration of a priest or, or by any other way, which I, I don't know what other ways have been practiced, is repugnant. Not to Scripture alone. <laughs> I love this. Now they're like, it's so disgusting. 
It's disgusting when you approach it from Scripture, but not even, I mean, even more than that, it's disgusting because it, even to common sense and reason, it doesn't make sense. It overthroweth the nature of the sacrament and hath been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. So they're like, they're like, it transubstantiates? It looks like bread and wine to me. I mean, my reason tells me it's bread and wine. It's not body and blood. And so they're just like, it's obvious. It doesn't transform. Um, our reason tells us that, but Scripture, of course, is the primary authority. And um, again, the one transubstantiation that has actually ever occurred is when Jesus changed the water into the wine. But the water looked like wine after he transubstantiated it, right? So that's a true transubstantiation. It became wine. And that's the only example we see of transubstantiation. Um, we don't see it in this. Remember, okay, so um, in the last few minutes here, I, I want to say um, this. I'm going to move away from the confession. What is the Reformed view, and what was Calvin's view of Christ's presence in the Lord's table? Okay, if he isn't there physically... And if he's, but, but if he's present there because, they, or, uh, because Jesus is present there in the Lord's table, we, we can really say that we eat the body and drink the blood of Christ spiritually. So, so what's going on here? Um, here's what Calvin taught, and I think it's really quite beautiful. Calvin taught that because of our union with Christ... When we come to this table, we are being lifted up to Christ in our union with Him, and we receive the bread and wine as if from His own hands, okay? So it's exactly parallel to what the apostles experienced in the upper room because of our union with Christ. And so, we're, so when you receive from the elders next time, you should be thinking, I'm receiving this directly from Christ. I am receiving this directly from my Savior because I'm united to Him and He has lifted me up into the heavenlies to be with Him during this meal. And so, in a sense, it's heaven on earth. When you come to the Lord's table, right? It could be hell on earth if you come without faith, right? It could be hell on earth. But... It is, it is Jesus Christ himself serving you in that meal. You should think about that. It's exactly parallel to the apostles' experience. It's normal bread. It's normal wine. Jesus is present there. You're with him. His hands are giving it to you by that union, in a sense, okay? So that's what Calvin taught. He tried to win Luther to it. He tried to win others, tried to bring the camps together, and... Um, it, it didn't fly, and the Lutherans really held to this doctrine of ubiquity, that Christ's physical body can be everywhere at the same time. Calvin said, no, no, it's to the right hand of the Father in heaven. It's a real body. It's, not a, it's a body like yours and mine. It can't be in more than one place at one time. This doctrine of ubiquity that both the Catholics and Lutherans hold to, no, no, it doesn't, 
it, it, it's not scriptural, it doesn't make sense. And he said, no, it, it's the, the body is there to the right hand of the Father. And we go up and visit him by the Spirit and by our union with him to receive from his hands. And I love that. I love the, the, the sweetness of that. I love the parallel that it is to, to what the apostles experienced and how that just continues on for all of God's people through the ages. So that's, that's a very rough and simple overview of Calvin's doctrine, which most people call real presence or spiritual presence of Christ. So it's not that we're, we're just commemorationists, like there's no presence of Christ in this meal, you know, which would be a typical Baptist, American Baptist sort of take that we're just remembering. It's purely commemoration. No, we believe Christ is present here, but in a very specific way, okay? We eat the body and blood of Christ spiritually by faith, not physically with teeth and tongue. Any questions? I have like 14 seconds. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would have to go and, and read Calvin's. I don't think it's in the Institutes. It's elsewhere that he writes on it. I think it's in a preface on, uh, or I think it's on a treatise on the Lord's table. So, I mean, I can try and find that for you and see what proofs he goes to. Um, but yeah, that one in my mind would certainly work. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, it's a meal, and that's a meal. It's Christ's presence. It's Christ at the head of the table, you know, so um, it is a, a foretaste of that meal, I think we could call it very easily. So, yeah. yeah. Anything else? Is that helpful? Good. All right. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you that we may know him, that we may fellowship with him, that your spirit has come to be a comforter for us and and to uh, abide within us so that we might uh, be close to your Son and receive his body and his blood, the bread and the wine from his very own hands. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand these mysteries, to be encouraged by them. I pray that we would do what's required to come to the table, which is examine ourselves and and confess our sins to you and repent and then know the great joy of forgiveness through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.